Hey, this is Jamie from Stillmeyer Games, and today I'm going to talk about 10 manufacturing secrets. So these are 10 things to think about as you are selecting the composition of your game. I think this could apply to other products as well, but I think primarily this is for tabletop games. A lot of this applies specifically to tabletop games. I'm pulling this from a blog post that I wrote back in 2018 that I'll post in the link below if you want to read this in detail and, uh, and bookmark it if it's helpful for you. Um, but I've updated it quite a bit over the last couple of days for this video specifically. So uh, the first category is uh, ask your manufacturer for, oh, and I should clarify, my manufacturer is Panda. Uh, Panda is a Canadian company with their main facility in China. And I've worked with Panda for 10 years now and have a, had had a wonderful experience throughout the entire process in terms of their communication, their speed, their pricing, their quality, all across the board. I love Panda. Um, so. Uh, number one, ask your manufacturer for easy peel shrink shrink wrapped decks of cards. So if you need to shrink wrap shrink shrink wrap your cards, I'll talk about that more in a second. Um, ask for them to be easy peel. I don't actually have any unopened decks of cards here handy. I don't think. Um, actually, maybe I do. Yeah, I do have one from uh, Tuscany here. So here's an example of a pack of cards that is not easy peel. There's no like little uh, uh, lip for me to pull up and open these cards. Um, the reason for this is uh, manufacturers use different types of machines to seal cards in, and depending on how many cards you are making and their size, they may not have the machine for that specific size. So Panda does have this easy peel uh, capacity for other card sizes, but not this particular card size, or at least not at this quantity. They do instead have, there's kind of a little hole in the shrink wrap right here where you can kind of get in there and open the shrink wrap, but I greatly prefer the easy peel. They're, you want players to have a good experience from the game from the minute they open it, and if they are struggling to open the cards, that can definitely impede their experience. So easy peel shrink wrap decks of cards. Also, you can switch to the more eco-friendly paper bands. That's something that I believe we tried in Libertalia Winds of Gelcrest. Um, I know we're trying it for another upcoming product. However, I, wouldn't I, I would only recommend doing that if you can bookend that deck of cards with some protector cards because the paper bands can kind of rub off not only on the top and bottom card, but on the cards in between, but particularly the, the top and bottom card. Um, and if the deck of cards are, are securely uh, packaged for shipping, because if you have, uh, those paper bands don't hold, hold the cards completely securely, so you might have a card get loose and could get damaged during the shipping process. So that is easy peel shrink wrapped deck of cards if you need to, but ideally for a more eco-friendly option when circumstances allow for it is to go for the, uh, the paper bands. Number two, no glossy game boards, cards, or mats. Uh, sometimes this is called a varnish, sometimes it's a gloss, sometimes it's a gloss varnish. Uh, I highly recommend not using a glossy finish. So um, a number of these things are lessons that I've learned along the way. The very original version of Tuscany had a glossy board. Now you can see it's a matte board with a linen finish, but the original version was glossy. And the problem with glossy boards, even though they feel luxurious almost they feel really nice they feel like they'll last a long time and they'll feel like they'll protect against liquids um the problem is if you have really i mean i, I don't even want to say if you have lighting because you are going to play your game in the light with any sort of lighting the sun lighting from above lighting from the sides you are going to get glare on that board that makes it 
certain parts of it impossible to read from different angles. And that's not only for the game board, that's for mats, cards, anything, uh, tiles, anything you have on the table, a glassy finish uh, will lead to glare and will ensure that some players can't see all the content on the table. So I highly recommend going for a matte finish. And I think the linen makes it feel a little bit nice. I'll talk about linen more in a second, but makes it feel nice and helps protect it a little bit for longevity. So no glossy game boards and cards, mats, or tiles. Number three, add air holes in plastic bags. So I mentioned the little hole in the, the Tuscany cards a second ago. And in plastic bags, um, if you request a little hole, actually this bag, I didn't, I didn't pull one. So some bags that we used to get didn't have air holes. And this is just a tiny little element of, of the customer experience. But I'm sure you, at some point in your life, you have tried to seal a plastic bag and you close it up and then you realize there's too much air in there and you have to push out the air. You have to open it back up to push out the air. You can ask your manufacturer at no extra cost to only provide bags that have two little holes punched in them. Um, yeah, here's one, an example I was going to use in a second. There's a little hole right there. Um, that lets out the air. So it means even though I sealed this bag twice, uh, sealed it up, I mean, it's not going to puff out because all the air can go out that little hole. The downside is it can let in other substances if you're worried about water, moisture, things like that. But I value the, the user experience, I think, of being able to push air out easily over the, uh, the protection that a bag um, prevents, uh, prevents uh, liquid from getting in there. And, and it still helps most liquid not get in here. Um, also, I'm holding up here a compo compostable, um, biodegradable plastic bag. This bag will hold up for a long time and then it will biodegrade, especially if, and this one is even compostable. Not all of them are, but this, this particular one is compostable. Um, it's not see-through, so it's not quite the same experience as a plastic bag. There are plastic bags that are biodegradable but not compostable. But this is, you know, if we're going to use a lot of plastic bags, um, or if you're going to use plastic bags at all, why not use a plastic that won't be here in 100 years? Um, it'll be here for 5 or 10 years. Um, so that's something that you can also request. This is an extra cost to go for these. And last, one other thing you might have seen that I held up some rubber bands here. Um, if you need rubber bands in your game, and I used to think that these were a good way of holding cards together in a game. I no longer think that um, because it can kind of bend the cards over time. But if you do need rubber bands, you can request latex-free rubber bands from your manufacturer. So that way, uh, people with latex allergies won't um, trigger those allergies as a result. So overall, number three is add air holes to your plastic bags. Number four is to consider symmetrical card backs. So we have some couple, here's, here's a card back. Uh, in the Tuscany buildings, that is not symmetrical. And that means that, uh, that the good side of this, so th this isn't a clear answer here, but the, uh, the upside to this is that when I draw one of these structure cards from Tuscany, I know before I even flip it over which side is face up. However, um, let me see if I can find an example here in the games that I have. Oh, Red Rising, yeah, I have an example over here in Red Rising. Um, in Red Rising, yeah, here we go. These are symmetrical card backs. So from either orientation, this card is the right side up. Um, the benefit of doing this is that over multiple printings of a game, um, it is possible that at some point the card sheets might get turned around at your manufacturer. Um, this has happened, I think the most famous example of this is in Lords of Waterdeep. 
but it has definitely happened with other games, expansions, things like that. And the benefit of having symmetrical card backs is that uh, no matter which way the card sheet is turned when it comes out off the printer, off the cutter, uh, it's the right side up. It's always right side up. I think there is some give or take here. I don't think this is a clear answer, but it's definitely something to consider. Um, that uh, you don't want to hurt the user experience, but um, it does enable longevity for the game because no matter how you print it, it's going to be right side up. So that is number four. Consider symmetrical. I may have said asymmetrical. Consider symmetrical card backs. And number five, linen embossing. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier in reference to the, uh, the board for uh, Tuscany. Um, I have here on the board for Red Rising that has linen embossing, a linen finish. Um, I'll get to rule books here in a second. But, but yeah, linen makes things feel really, really nice. I think the only downside to linen is that, um, and I think this is the reason why, or one of the reasons why you don't see linen cards in a lot of deck building games, is that it makes the cards a little bit thicker. It makes the content on those cards very marginally harder to read, but it's very, very marginal. Um, if you have foil to print on the card, so in Red Rising, we had foil on some of these cards. Here's a foil card. You can see that foil over there. Um, the machine that stamps on the foil uh, stamps after the linen is on there, and it, uh, or is it before? It's one of the two. It's before or after, um, but it can actually press the word through to the back of the card just a little bit. It's really hard to see. You really have to be looking for it. It's up here. I don't know if you can see it. Um, so if you have foil, you don't generally want to do linen. But linen does make things feel really nice and luxurious. And it is not a significant added cost. It's very marginal. Um, yeah, I, I love linen. I, I use it on tiles. I use it on the board game boxes. I use it on, on the, the mats. Um, everywhere. If I can put linen on something, I generally do it. So I, I, think, uh, I think linen is really nice. Number six, so that's linen embossing. Number six is rule book size and composition are flexible. This is a really important thing to keep in mind because oftentimes for many, many years now, I've thought of rule books as I want to have this book be as few pages as possible, have as much space as possible on each card. And so if I have a box the size of Red Rising, I want the rule book to be about the size of the box, a little bit smaller than the box, but pretty much this size. That's what we did with Red Rising. Um, but what I realized is, and let me show you what that looks like. So Red Rising, here's the rule book. Here's the Red Rising rule book, giant rule book. It is really hard to read this rule book like this. Like I can do it, you can do it. It's durable enough for me to hold this open, but it's a lot to look at. This is a lot of information here. Um, it, it takes up a lot of space. It's pretty much impossible for me to have this open on the table and even closed on the table, it's pretty hard to do. Um, however, I was listening to a video from Jack Eddy at, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name of his, cha his channel now, um, the, the board game Herald, I think. Um, Jack suggested, uh, he pointed out that some companies use smaller rule books, and I have an example here with Libertalia under all this stuff. So we decided to go with a smaller rule book for Libertalia. So you can see how much smaller this is. Here is the Red Rising rule book or the Atoma rule book. See how much smaller that is for Libertalia. Um, this smaller size, this is 165 by 240 millimeters. This smaller size leads to a much more kind of consumable amount of information. Same font size here, just 
um, more consumable information on each page. A lot easier to open up and hold in my hands as I'm kind of just looking through it. A lot smaller space to put on the table, whether it's open or closed, so I can keep this on the table at all times. It's just a better user experience, in my opinion. Um, but the point here isn't necessarily that this is the right size and this is the wrong size, but rather your rulebook size is flexible. It can be whatever you want. You could, in fact, one of the things I did back in back in the day, um, I still do it sometimes, is I made rulebooks the size of fairly standard printer paper, so people could print the rulebook at home if they wanted to. Um, I don't think people do that a lot, but I think it is possible to do that. Um, it's also uh, the smaller sizes I think work a little bit better for like tablets. Um, because tablets usually aren't square, but if someone has it on their iPad, iPads are a little bit kind of the shape of a, a normal piece of paper. Anyway, the point is your rulebook size is flexible. You can choose any size you want for the rulebooks. Uh, think about what you like in terms of uh, rulebook size uh, when you are designing, when you're deciding the size for your rulebook itself. Also, one little tip here is if you've ever held a Stomeyer Games over the last like four or five years, you know that we have special paper that we use for the rule books. Um, it feels a little bit like a linen embossing, but it's a paper. Uh, it's just a basically I had Panda send me a, a sample booklet of all the different paper types that I could use for my rule book. And I went through and closed my eyes and I felt it pay, uh, piece by piece until I found one that I thought felt the best. And ever since then, we've made our rule books out of that texture. And it just gives them this extra nice, it gives you, most people at least, I think some people don't like it, but I, I think it makes that rule book feel a little special, a little luxurious. And again, it isn't a big additional cost. There's These little things add up over time. You have to choose which ones you want. But, um, but the point is that you can ask your manufacturer, especially if you have a good ongoing relationship with them, you can ask them for other textures that you can use for your rule book, other types of paper, rather than the standard rule book paper used for most rule books. So that is rule book size and composition are flexible. Number seven, another thing I learned the hard way. If you have a bag or bags in your game, a linen bags uh, or cloth bags, make sure they are double stitched. So double stitched refers to the stitching at the bottom of the bag if it is single stitched, your bag will break. And that's what happened with the Tapestry Plans Employees expansion, which is really unfortunate because we included a bag purely because fans asked us for a bag where they could store their territory tiles or where they can draw their territory tiles from. We provided a bag that I thought looked rustic and thematically appropriate, but I did not know at the time that I needed to request double stitched bags. Um, so this, I, I don't wanna pour this bag out completely. Um, but you can kind of see it here how this is a double stitch bag and that just makes it extra durable It means that things aren't going to poke through the bottom this bag from Libertalia This is a Libertalia bag is going to last a long time um, So yeah, if you have bags make sure you request that request that they are double stitched That's number seven number eight wood trumps plastic for meeples and tokens another thing I learned the hard way so I've used wood for meeples for a long time um, and then it at a certain point, I decided to start switching for, for some tokens to plastic. I can't even exactly remember entirely why I started doing that. Um, I think maybe it was the flexibility of plastic. I think I also had some bad experiences with Scythe where the wood isn't always cut perfectly. Like they, it's, it isn't an exact science. They're trying to cut the same, the, each little meeple the same size each time. But if you have pieces where the size really, really matters, plastic is more consistent than wood. Anyway, I kind of switched for a little while with Pendulum. We had a bunch of plastic tokens in it, pl plastic meeples, plastic resource tokens. And the feedback was overwhelmingly 
that people would have preferred that those were wooden tokens. There's something nicer about the touch, the photo look, the look on the table of wooden tokens compared to plastic, specifically for meeples and tokens. So I recommend wood over, over uh, plastic, something that you probably already know, but I had to learn this the hard way. I would recommend it to you. Um, with cubes, I don't think cubes matter all that much. I think plastic cubes or wooden cubes, I think you can pretty much go either way there. But if you have the choice, go wood. Um, also, just a little bonus to this one. If you have dice in your game, and I don't think I have dice in any... No, I do have one, one die here. I have uh, the die from Red Rising. Uh, request... Uh, this, this might be personal preference, but I think it's worth requesting rounded corners. You can see how this die has rounded corners. It means that each face of the die is actually a circle and the corners are rounded. I think these dice roll slightly better. I think they leave your hand in a slightly more pleasing way. And I think they just look a little fancier to have rounded edges on the dice instead of square corners. Um, actually, I have the Rolling Realm, Realms dice here too. Yeah, here are the Rolling Realms dice. And actually, this is another good example here of this. the final uh, point I wanted to make on number eight, which is that uh, if you have dice, um, consider making them custom dice, even if it's just a custom version of a standard D6. So this is a D6, but we made the pips little hexes to fit with a theme of Rolling Realms a little bit. We made the corners rounded. We made them marble dice. We made them bigger than normal dice. We tried to make them feel as special as possible because there are only two, two dice in Rolling Realms. We wanted them to feel special. Um, I don't think there's really, I mean, other than budget a little bit, yeah, it does take a little bit of a, a little bit of money to create the mold for a new die. So I understand why some publishers just go with standard D6. Uh, but given that you can pretty easily and cost-effectively make a custom version of a D6 if you really need to use a D6, why not go for it? Why not make that element of your game feel a little special as a result? Uh, I've seen some really, really cool examples of this, of, of special D6 that really fit the theme of the game um, that just look special. So something to consider that uh, e even though you've been playtesting and you kind of have it in your head that you just have a standard pip die, you can make that die extra special. It can make it a featured component of the game rather than a standard die that just happens to be in your game. And number nine, include the name and core specs of your game all over the box, on all sides. And let's see if I did this for Red Rising. I'll pull out Red Rising right now. I'll also look at Libertad Winds of Gilcrest. So here we go. We have the name of the box over here. Collector's Edition right there. Um, we have the specs over here, the playing time, player count, age, uh, the companies that were involved with it, Stomar Games and Altama Factory for the solo mode. That is all the, uh, the information that you need there. But we don't just have it on that side. Let's see, yeah, we have it on this side too. We have it on that side too. And we have it on that side too. And of course, we have it on the top of the box. Do we have all the information? No, on the top of the box, we do not have the age uh, player count. So we didn't have that on the top of the box here. So that's a little bit of a mistake there. Um, but one of the other keys here is that you might have seen, I have three horizontal sides and one vertical side. You want to have, in my opinion, at least one vertical side and at least one horizontal side so each person can store the game as they prefer on their shelf. Uh, let's see what we did with Libertalia. Because Libertalia, I believe, does... Yeah, it does have the core specs on the front of the box. It has the name. It has uh, the designer. has the artist. Don't forget to put the artist on the box. They are a huge part of creating the game. Um, 
And then on the sides, again, we have the information. Here's the, the vertical side. Here's a horizontal side, all that information. Here's a horizontal side. Here's a vertical side. Obviously, there are exceptions to this. If you're going for something, I don't know, a little artsy, maybe don't put all that information on there. But I think it really helps for players when they are looking for that information. Um, it means that no matter how the game is on your shelf or on a shelf of a game store, um, that someone who is looking at it can see all that information at a glance. They don't have to hunt it down. I can't tell you how many games I have to hunt down what the player count is, and I find it in some tiny little text on the back of the box. It's nowhere else in the box. Put that information all over the box so people can see how many players can play, how much time it's gonna take, and that other information as well at the different orientations. I think that is hugely beneficial. Also, um, little bonus here, a couple, a uh, little bonus is that your box, similar to the rulebook composition inside size, there is no such thing as a standard game box. You can choose any, any size you want. Like literally you can choose any size you want. Um, so pick the size that is right for your game and your audience. The reason that, that you see a lot of boxes that are somewhat of a, st what a standard size, like a ticket to ride size, that's uh, around 296 by 296 by 70 millimeters is that a few games came out with that size and then other people started using that same size and people like to have uh, that same size on their shelf, lined up on the shelf so the games are all the same height. But my shelf is full of games of different sizes um, and that's okay too because they are each, each box is the right size for that particular game. So pick the box that is the right size for your game. If you do have a game that happens to be a good fit for this size of box or close to it, sure. Go for this standard size, but really you can pick any size of box that you want for your games. That's number nine. And number 10, the last thing, test everything. And specifically, shake test inserts and lids. Let's start with that and then I'll talk about the concept of, of testing everything. So with uh, Red Rising, Red Rising, we had an insert. I'll show you in the collector's edition at least, we have this insert. I can't hold it up right now because I don't have the lid on, but uh, ooh, got a hair in there. Here's the insert for the collector's edition of Red Rising. It has a little place for everything. Looks really nice, yeah? However, the lid for Red Rising isn't designed. Uh, in fact, you can see it here. It's pretty obvious now that I look at it. The lid is designed to hold the board really nice above it, but it's flat underneath. And so it isn't designed to keep any of these little components that are in these little compartments um, in their place. It should have little, uh, little rounded areas that fit into each of these. Um, Convex, I believe, Con the convex slots built into the insert to hold all the components in place. Now, this is a normal thing, to, a mistake to make, but uh, I would have realized this immediately if when I had gotten this sample copy, um, I had shook it. However, the other problem here is I got the sample insert for Red Rising after we had already entered manufacturing, because uh, usually you wait until the end to take care of the insert because you need to make sure it fits all the components. Um, and the, so the, the big lesson I learned is that I, I need to have samples of everything and I need to test them and shake them and, and you know, test, basically just test every component. I need to see every component in person, not just in photos, but in person and handle it in person before I, uh, before I approve it. I, I think this is a, a universal rule. If you are working with a manufacturer that won't send you a sample, don't approve it uh, because that sample might not be what you thought it was. And uh, it's often, sometimes you'll, you'll even send a note to your, or sometimes I'll even send a note to my project manager and I might forget about it. I might say, I might request a certain component or a certain component change for a reprint. 
Um, and then I'll forget about it because there's one of, you know, hundreds of emails that I send every day. But, uh, and, and it isn't until I actually handle it in person when I'm like, oh, wow, that, that thing that I sent, that request I sent a long time ago that maybe I wrote down in the right place or not, maybe it was just an email. Um, it did or didn't happen. It's at that moment where you're actually handling it that, that you realize that things work or don't work or that your requests were actually followed through on. So, uh, yeah, I highly recommend requesting samples of everything. And one little thing that you can do when you do this component testing is, uh, especially early on in the process, before you've actually made all the tokens in the game, is to use an app called Colorblind Pal to test the colorblind friendliness of the components in the games. I think it's a very, very helpful app for, um, for testing colorblindness. Little bonus tip here at the end, I recommend that you start to make non-printed components first. Non-printed components like metal components, miniatures, uh, uh, wooden tokens, plastic tokens, they take longer in general. They take longer than the printed components. And so it's okay. Uh, it can accelerate the process by a few weeks, not a ton of time, but by a few weeks. If once you've approved everything, you've sent everything to the printer, at that point in time, you can say, you know, it's, go it's okay to go ahead and start making the miniatures. Let's go ahead and start doing that. Um, or the, the wooden tokens, and uh, the, pr the printed components will catch up in the long run. The only printed components that actually take just as long as those other components is anything like the box, um, uh, the board, punch board, anything that has a layer of cardboard and then paper glued to that needs time to, uh, to both to print, but also to, uh, to set on there and dry. It has to be properly dried or it will warp, so you need plenty of time for that as well. Those are my 10 manufacturing secrets that I wanted to share with you today. They aren't really secrets, but they're things to keep in mind that I think might not be super obvious that I've learned pretty much the hard way with every one of these along the way. I'm hoping to share this with you so you don't have to learn it the hard way. Let me know in the comments below what your thoughts, thoughts are on these topics. I, I know this isn't objective. This is highly subjective. So let me know if you agree or disagree. And also if you have any other tips that you've learned along the way from being just a gamer or a uh, publisher um, or even a manufacturer, if any manufacturers want to chime in about little things to keep in mind when you are telling your manufacturer how to compose your game, uh, let me know in the comments below. Thanks.